You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week, we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. Pablo Juarez, the co-director of Triad, the Autism Institute at the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center, joins us this week. In later episodes, Pablo will return as a guest, but this week the topic is time-limited care and giving more access to the young adult teen population to be able to access some of the care that's out there to aid and encourage this access in our community and these clinical issues that we have to discuss to make things better. In his current position, Pablo focuses on autism and works within academic and state systems to ensure that autistic children, autistic students, and autistic adults can access what they need to be successful. And that could be treatment, that could be community partnerships, and that could be just having these dialogues and these conversations. Pablo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be back. So what I'd love to be able to do is for maybe you and I just to kind of put out there right now what we're hearing from some of the stakeholders in the community about maybe some of the, and and I'll, I'll use the term loosely, but negligence around focusing on care for anybody who isn't simply early intensive behavior intervention. Yeah, that's such a big topic too. And I'm glad that we're kind of doing this in a in a conversational way because uh, there's so much to dig into and so much nuance that we're certainly not going to be able to capture, I think, in, in this particular format completely. But there are definite issues that we're hearing from families that we've either served or encountering here in our part of the country. And for those of you that don't know, we're at the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center, which is in Nashville, Tennessee. We're part of Vanderbilt University Medical Center which is in and of itself the largest diagnostic center in the state of Tennessee, particularly for children under the age of five. And that's important because we've diagnosed or provided assessments for a large number of families over the past number of decades. And what we're starting to hear is some of those families coming back to us and and, and discussing some access to services challenges that they're having, particularly as their kids um, extend beyond school age. So. I'll just lay out like one big thing that's happening in our community right now is there are a lot of companies and service providers moving into our state. One of the largest just moved in and and opened a number of clinics, and and most of those were ones that had already existed prior to them buying out uh, a couple of clinics in our area. And families are already receiving services there. In large part, have been told that their children uh, are going to be discharged from care because they're school age children and. They're shifting their priority for these clinics to serve children under the age of five. And one of the things I know for a fact that that families who are in this position feel is that their children are valued unless they're under the age of five and they can go through several hours a week of, of services, sometimes up to 40 hours. And in fact, that's what's being pushed quite a bit in our area, 30 to 40 hour week program. So you know, our community is feeling, I think, largely untaken care of. You know, we've got this large influx of service providers moving in, and it feels like there should be more service providers to care for our kids. And and suddenly what families are learning is actually, if you have a child who's over the age of five, it's increasingly getting more challenging for you to find some level of service, even with the influx coming in. So from 
a number of families, we've been hearing the same sort of sentiment that, that you know, our, our children are no longer valued once they cannot help turn a profit. And, and those yeah. are direct quote. That's a direct quote that I've had from a number of families. Yeah, and and I think that I mean that perspective is is not unique. I don't think to Tennessee. I think it's happening in a variety of places. And when I look at this issue at large, is that I see so many layers of things that it's almost a whack-a-mole to figure out at this point. It's you know, do we have enough qualified clinicians? Well, I I'd, I'd say is that the clinician set is growing. But that means we have to train all these clinicians. That means we have to empower them to to focus on the right thing. And a majority of people that are coming out of ABA coursework is that their their practice, what they were trained in, is the same service that that you're talking about, the early intervention, because that's where they could get jobs before. That's what they could do. So where is their focus? It's been there. And I think that there's got to be a way to start building a larger population of BCBAs, clinicians, that maybe have learned to work with older kids more effectively. Um, And hopefully it it trickles down and that you start to build a larger support class. But even on that note, like when, when I think about the difference between early intervention programming and working with child and adolescents, how much do you think that even the clinician set understands the differences and is programming effectively with the older group right now? Or are they just applying what they learned for the younger subset for developmental stages across all age groups? I mean, is there something we need to do clinically right now? Yeah, that's a big question. I think for for the, the first part of it, what I'll say is in our area, a lot of the behavior plans that I'm seeing come across our desk for review or questions that are coming up to us from school systems or families of of, of uh, older children and adolescents and even young adults. Lack of creativity in, in, in setting goals and developing interventions. And, and that creativity comes with experience, right? Like we can't we can't apply everything we've learned about young kids to older kids for a number of reasons that we probably don't even need to highlight here. But, you know, the fact is, I think you're right, is we're seeing a lot of providers who come in with that skill set um, of really knowing how to develop some 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 truly good skill acquisition programs for young kids that does not necessarily port to older children, adolescents, young adults, especially as those environments become more complex those contingencies become more complex and harder to unwind. You know, there are definite challenges with with uh, meeting needs as a person gets older, just based off the complexity of human life, mm-hmm. much less trying to apply this very sort of narrow skill set to this kind of broader set of needs. So I do think that from a training standpoint, that I feel like that's what we're seeing in our area is what you're describing as sort of this kind of influx of training specifically focused on on young kids and and then having a hard time learning how to apply that to older kids. And I use the word creativity very purposely because, you know, that's the whole point of our, not the whole point of our science, but an important aspect of our science is you've got to learn these principles, learn how they apply um, across different contextual variables mm-hmm. and, and factors. And, and if you can't creatively meet those needs and then rise to them, um, 
you know, we're going to be fairly unsuccessful in what we're doing, especially as we face an increasingly complex society. So I think that, that we need to open up spaces for that creative learning. I think that, that that idea behind creativity, I think that it's it's extremely important. Um, there's no curriculum out there that's going to tell you how to be able to treat a lot of the service recipients and what they're looking to be able to get out of treatment. Like you're not just gonna go and start plugging and chugging on these. And as a child gets older, I would say that's even more so is that you're dealing with kind of core characteristics that that you'd be in there trying to be able to help empower around. And that's and I think Vanderbilt does this really well, but I mean it's it's looking at, okay, so what is going to allow this particular individual to be safe within their community and others to feel safe as well as they're supporting or as they're as they're trying to collaborate or or enhance the environment. The other ones would be as creating some dignity and some self-respect and some some self-empowerment, self-fulfillment through the process. Um, I think that's super important to be able to look through. And then and I think that the that the other component that we'd be looking at on, on top of the behavioral parts that really are almost in school systems deal breakers and you see a lot of kids suspended for specific behaviors and you know yes target those make sure that we're really helping to keep somebody in the environment they need to be in but i think it's also creating opportunity for the future and creating a way for somebody to engage in what they would like to do when i think about those things and when i think about programming around it it's programs become larger as far as in concept. So a goal might, you might only have three goals. You might only have two goals in a program, but you got to figure out ways to incorporate it into every part of the child's life. Is that right now, I mean, is that a hindrance? Is there a lack of community effort to say, we need to really wrap around these three goals versus the education system saying, I got to teach A, B, and C? Uh, a behavioral health center saying I need to focus on colors and I need to focus on uh, labels of things that maybe have no significance to the child and a community system that maybe is not welcoming. I mean, are there big pieces that, like, okay, so that we have barriers that we need to build first or break down, I mean, through this process? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you can accomplish several things at once if we take and we talked about this on this podcast before is more of a community informed approach to the practice. And so one of the things that we always think about, or we should always be thinking about as behavior analysts is how do we build self-advocacy skills? And I think on the surface, a lot of us could look at our behavior programs and say, oh yeah, certainly self-advocacy is built in and most of the things we do, but is it really, right? Like if you're not honoring assent throughout if you don't have a way of, of, of assessing assent in an ongoing way throughout a practice or throughout a treatment session or anything you're doing, and then you're not honoring that assent, then are you truly developing self-advocacy skills or just a more expanded form of compliance, right? And I think that that's what we, uh, if we could go back and start thinking, okay, most of our providers are coming to, through programs, or focusing their education on early intervention because that's the bulk of what we're doing right now. If we can focus a good bit of our training or our practice needs on assent, self-advocacy, self-determination, those types of skill sets, 
then I think we open up a lot of opportunities for us in terms of creative goal setting and intervention development. But also we're we're starting to truly honor those things the community is telling us that we need to provide, like the ability to self-determine practice. Even for kids as young as three, there are ways to really do that. Ways to honor neurodiversity for children who are diagnosed with autism. And there are ways to do that with children under three. And not only to start to do that with children under three, but how do we start to help caregivers and educators and practitioners of children who are under three? How do we get them thinking about self-determination for their child? How do we get them thinking about self-advocacy skills and why that's going to be important in sixth grade, seventh grade, you know, on the job market? So that's one approach is I think we need to think very early on about those core skills and what the community wants us to provide. And we can turn that around and I think really do a lot of really incredible things with it. No, and I agree. And and I, I also think is that, I mean, you're you're talking about those core skills being built and some of them, maybe we are not prioritizing the right way right now. But I also think is that as we work through treatment, our biggest goal is to be able to empower somebody to be a part of the community to be able to do whatever it is that they're hoping to be able to do to generalize skills and create community stakeholders, community partners. Early intervention, it makes sense on an intensive model more so than when you get to school aged and above where you have more access to community models to be able to say, hey, we should be transitioning care. We should be fading some of our treatment. We should be there to support those core skills but we also have more opportunity right now to bring the world into the treatment plan, to be able to create a community around this, to be able to allow for more independence. I mean, do you see it the same way as that in trying to be able to take that high intensity hour model and move it on to all older kids? Is that, that, that that's something that, you know, it doesn't intuitively make sense all the time is that you're really trying to be able to push to be able to allow somebody to take advantage of the community structure. Yeah, I agree. It'd be really hard to lock somebody in for sort of long-term service delivery. I, I think especially in the more complex settings our, our kids get into as they grow older. I have a son who has autism. He's nine years old right now, fourth grade. And his environment is getting more and more complex, right? He's got mm-hmm. school. He's got the various things he's focusing on in school. He's got jujitsu outside of school, Boy Scouts, his friends, right? He's got a lot of different things going on that we need to be able to balance. And if we were just to put him in service delivery from the time he got out of school for several hours after, or even pulled him out of school early to access some of that I mean, he'd been missing a whole range of other things that are really important to him and his social development and and his happiness and what makes him, you know, really feel connected to his community. So, you know, I worry a lot about kind of pulling him out of things specifically just to have him learn sort of specific skill sets when we can figure out how to do that within all those environments he set in. Now, is that easy for everybody to do? No, not at all. And, and we're at the advantage because I'm a behavior analyst, and and so is um, his 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 mom. And and we are surrounded by behavior analysts and and people at the school that really kind of know what we're after and and have worked with us over a number of years. So we're very privileged in all of those ways. But even with that, it's really hard for me to imagine how we would give him 
what he needs in a holistic way if he's going straight from school, straight into service delivery. So there's got to be some balance and we have to, even if he needed it and we were to put him into something, I would want to do it with him in a time limited way where we got the things he needed. And then we learned as parents and caregivers and educators what he's going to need to be successful without that going forward. Mm-hmm. And if that's the focus of that service on the front end, you know, just what is it that we can provide those caregivers and those educators or those other providers uh, so that way they can carry on this really good work that we've done? Many cases, I think that is a, a really important goal and one that's not mm-hmm. too lofty for most of the people that we're looking to serve. Yeah, and I think that's the crux of the problem right now is that, um, I mean, you're talking about the idea of doing full-time treatment versus being able to do treatment with life. <laughs> and I think that that's trying to say, okay, so how do you balance that? How do you be able to make that work? But as far as the access to care and the number of providers in the field and the, the people to be able to continuously provide that care, like kind of, I think, the situation you're describing for your son, that's all in the afternoon. Right. And when you're looking at staffing shortages, you're looking at being able to make sure that parent involvement is there. You're looking at being able to transition some of the care into different communities is that you have you have, you have some challenges with a, with a purely afternoon model. And that's where for me, it's kind of like, OK, so there are bridges. The school needs to be involved more. We need to be able to collaborate behavior analysts with school settings far more to be able to make sure that for those core things that we are all working on and that the child's trying to be able to develop across every step of their life is that there's communication and consistency, which I think then takes some of the challenges of trying to condense everything you're trying to work on with a child outside of the school environment off the table. It it broadens the treatment venue. Um, so I think that's one of the biggest problems right now is that you have an afternoon shortage because we're not working well with the daytime cohesion of how do you mix behavioral health with the school model. So, I mean, what are you all doing on that? I mean, are you finding it effective? Are there th- are there things that we need to be able to continuously think about and improve on there? Well, I think there's there's two different approaches, I think. Well, there's probably more than two, but the two that we've really considered heavily in the past. Um, both have utility. The one that we uh, use most often is where we partner directly with the school and their school team. Now, we have the privilege of being able to come to those school teams with state funding. So the Department of Education in Tennessee has pays us essentially to work with um, school teams throughout the state who are who are serving students who engage in in really uh, some of the the highest rates and highest severity of aggressive and dangerous behavior. Um, It's not uncommon for us to work with a student who's 15 and has four adults with him at all time and who's off-site and very particular location for safety. And our goal is to get them zero restraints away from isolation into whatever environment's going to allow them to have the best schedule of reinforcement that's going to lend towards engagement, safety, cooperation, all those types of things. Now, for us to do that well for most of these students, it means we have to have fairly intensive partnerships with their school teams. And that's a challenging thing to build and develop. 
the luxury we have is that teams apply for our services and uh, they make a lot of commitments to be able to work mm -hmm. with us long term. So without teams making those commitments um, and without being able to hold them to those commitments, then it would be very challenging, I think, for for many of the situations we're in. So so we're, I think we're going to look we have we have a, 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 a bit of a luxury in being able to to stand behind a contract like that. The other challenge is that sometimes and this isn't this isn't as common, but there are times where what we're trying to do in a school is just simply not going to work in a school. And there are really very specific reasons that typically is. Sometimes it's because there's just no relationship between the student and the school and the school is kind of at their limit. And this is not a judgment, but sometimes mm -hmm. schools just just reach their limit where they just cannot do anything more and, and they, they can't conceive of how they can continue to put time and they're actively trying to seek another placement for a student. Yeah. And in situations like that or similar situations where it would be really untenable to provide that level of, of, of uh, intensive support within a school, then the ideal thing would be, can we find some location within the school system or someplace nearby that we can serve that student away from their school team, maybe give that school team a bit of a respite and then start to work them back into the school environment once we've learned how they learn best and we've taught them to self-advocate uh, appropriately. We've, we've you know, started to give them some of those core skills so that transition can happen. But in, in no world is it ever the case that we would want to be able to serve a student like that in a long-term fashion, and the goal would be to transition them back to the school environment as quickly as possible. Um, mm -hmm. But that that second set of services is really, uh, I think, a rare need. I think most of the time we can, I know most of the time we can accomplish really, really good things working directly with the school teams. Yeah, and when I when when you're describing that, is that it puts into mind two things that that I've been thinking about quite a bit uh, within time limited care. It's you know, the intensive time limited care, which is a stabilization at times to say, you uh -huh. know, if there's something right now that's really disrupting the environment enough that we need to do some intensive work for a short period of time just to be able to get the trust back, the safety back that for that individual to feel like they can go in and have a fresh start in the environment and at the same time help the environment to be able to modify slightly so that we can actually create that opportunity for cohesion to exist. Um, but then there's also that piece where, and and this is this is kind of the bigger picture for me right now. It's the idea of we have so many kids getting no care. We have, I mean, a good portion of people over the age of six are sitting on wait lists and not receiving care. If you look at kind of the percentages out there, yep. we need to be able to figure out what are those core skills? What are those behaviors? Who are the partners? And you mentioned parent education, but it's also stakeholder education, community education, so that people can follow the plan, so that potentially you can work on those core behaviors that are interfering with somebody's access to their environment and give empowerment to being able to be able to have some self-determination and a voice within those communities to the to the recipient of the care so that they don't need such intensive treatment and that you can almost do that on that time limited schedule say you know what i'm going to work on these two or three behaviors but i am going to work with everybody involved in this child's life 
on supporting those two or three behaviors. And we're going to do this in a nine month, 12 month, and it's all individualized schedule. And then we need to fade out because there is a long need of care that's out there. And if what we're doing is just prolonging care, not providing any transition, not looking at effective fade to be able to empower somebody to be a part of their community, is that we're never going to support the need of the community at large. There's going to get a larger and larger gap between recipients and people waiting for any access to support. And, and that's something I think is emerging right now is, you know, what are those core skills? How do you do it? How do you program effectively? I don't know that we've all been trained to do this, but I think that's a short-term solution that I've been thinking through that I think is supported by a lot of the research out there on, on behavioral supports is empowering everybody involved in the process. I mean, so what have you been thinking through just to be able to kind of, I know that you've been approached by your community, by um, funding sources, by parents, by probably referral sources on how do we solve this problem? I mean, do you have ideas on what you're looking at? Yes and no. Um, first of all, I think the way you just stated all that was was stated very well, and, and I would agree with everything there. I think that we have an opportunity to really rethink our place in the human services field, particularly for adolescents and older older people, including into adulthood. And, you know, one of the big, I mean, you think about where we are in terms of, and we as a field, and, and I'm, I'm maybe talking in an overgeneral way because of what I'm seeing here locally, but here locally, you know, there are providers who very much want to serve kids who are under five from the time they get diagnosed as young as two all the way up till five. And they say, we're going to keep you in 40 hours a week as long as we can. That's not the approach we certainly want to be taking as kids get older because we can't provide everything they need and we shouldn't provide the skill de development for all they need. There's a larger community they need to be able to access and our goal should be getting them into those communities to access those things in a way where they can engage um, and learn. And so I think I think that's an important approach we can take. In terms of thinking about how do we do that at large scale, we're going to have to tap into to work our colleagues and, and you know, other fields are, are, are tackling some other related issues. So, like, there's a lot of really interesting things happening in the world of public health and in terms of taking a large scale public health approach to even thinking about de-implementing particular practices. We're thinking about how can we take a large scale state approach, for example, to look at quality improvement from a statewide perspective. And I think there are some ways to do that. So just one of the things we're looking at doing here in Tennessee is one of my roles, I co-chair the Public Policy and Practice Committee at, at the Tennessee Association for Behavior Analysis. And I do that with Dr. James Mindel, who's at the University of Memphis. And one of the things we're looking to do, community advisory committee, made up of self-advocates and advocates and caregivers and a pretty broad, balanced group of people that we can hopefully start to get some direction on. What are some things you really need to see happen in the state, some movement you need to be able to, to point to or some things that would provide support to you or your family? And then those are give us some very specific points of, of going into various systems and figuring out how to address those directly. And one of the things I think that we need to be able to do is take a larger scale approach to just helping behavior analysts understand what the goals of caregivers, schools, other community sites where our spend a lot of time, 
what do they want us to be teaching their learners? What what do what skills do they need to be able to get out of these activities, and how do they need to best engage with those things? And those are things we can teach to, and probably should be teaching to. But if we can do that on a larger statewide level, then I think. Um, you know, we can access more resources and more support for that too, because now we're talking about a state association. We're talking about various state systems we could tap directly into potentially like departments of education or health or early intervention. And and then how do we bring those partners together and start to build, you know, a, a, a real coalition around ABA quality improvement, really focused on the front end at goal development? Because I think that's that's where we get tripped up early and often is within kind of that area of what we're looking to even teach. No, absolutely. And, and that's that's actually one of the initiatives that um, that I'm, I'm pretty passionate about right now is the fact that and I don't blame I don't blame where the field is for this, quite frankly, is that prior to probably about six, seven years ago, is that even the funding for any of the services that uh, were autism specific by payers, it was tailored by age. And it was following what was the research that has been developed from, I mean, the, I mean, the intensive research from the 80s on is that, yeah, people are putting more research money into what they're paying for. And, and that made sense at that time. We've only finally started to get some more and more research on how to be able to effectively treat school-aged and above all the way through adulthood. That research is trickling in. Prior to, we were trying to apply old research to a population that wasn't studied as well. And I think that that's kind of where we're getting is that now that research is there, we as a field need to take that on and say, listen, you know, we, we have more information. Let's do better. And part of that's training and making sure it trickles down is that everybody understands how to be able to to treat with different models of care, different modalities, different thought processes, how to be able to bring more people in. And quite frankly, I would imagine that you'd probably agree some of this stuff that we're learning for the older population trickles down to how we're actually treating some of the younger kids. And even in the goal planning that you were talking about, who yeah. would have thought that ascent was or the skill of teaching somebody how to be non-compliant is something that we should be teaching younger kids. And it's right. like, hold on, we always told them, no, you can't be non-compliant. And it's like, well, maybe we were wrong and we've learned yeah. this and we have to modify. But um, I mean, uh, to get back to kind of where we were, it's, yeah, things have changed. We've learned, we need to train better. And programming, I think, is at the heart of that is realizing what are appropriate goals as somebody ages. I think so too, and, and you can speak to this part better than I can, but the other thing that I, I am keenly aware of and don't want to discount is, you know, that these things need to be funded too. And if you're a provider, particularly one with, you know, private equity backing or or you're just trying to make ends meet as a clinic, why is it, does it become important to to really try to serve these students and are there things we need to talk to funders about and are there things we need to really focus on at a systems level so in our state it might be specific conversations with TenCare and the MCOs the managed care organizations that, that support that funding and I think that probably is a, an important conversation and set of conversations to have because when I talk with you know CEOs and other folks of some of these larger clinics who are moving into the area 
they're very much saying the incentives are lopsided and, and you know, it, it's, it comes down oftentimes to financial decisions as well, which uh, right or wrong is what it is. And I think that's that's part of what we need to start to really address as a field together is why are the incentives so much heavier one way or the other? Why does it become mm-hmm. so much easier to provide services to much younger kids? And you know, scheduling plays a big part in that, like you said, but is there a way to offset some of those incentive schedules or is there something we can do to, to make that more accessible for providers? You know, how do we help you to be able to broaden your scope of service and take on different demographics and be able to support a whole different population of people? Um, and that, and that, that could be age, but it could be anything, to be honest, yep. is that... But yeah, and I hope that, uh, and I know that we plan on talking about this in the future, it's just understanding kind of the finances behind, you know, what's occurring and, and why things are, is that whether whether you're private equity backed or whether you're self, self-funded self and still a private organization or you're a nonprofit, is that those pain points, I think, exist equally, where, you know, you, you need to understand how to be able to stay afloat, but at the same time, it doesn't mean you don't need to do what's clinically right all the time. Right. And it's trying to figure out how do you do that? How do you balance it? How do you do it right? Um, and I think that that's something that I, I would enjoy to talk with you about um, at our next conversation as we as we kind of move forward. But I, I want to keep this one going. And, and I think there are resources out there. I think that there are plenty of people that are putting time and energy into trying to increase access to care. The advocacy work was done with with regulation and with a lot of legislators across a lot of states to be able to increase the age of service that's going to be paid for by health insurance. That's awesome. The educational programs are starting to get a little bit more involved in, you know, how do we create some behavior analytic work within our schools to help support us? And I think people are all trying to solve it. But I think that this is an ongoing conversation that needs to happen. Where would you suggest that, I mean, for a provider, if they want to get involved in these conversations, and this could be somebody new to their field. Those are the people that often change the field, the people with uh, all that passion and new ideas. And yeah. Where should they be going and talking about these conversations? I would suggest very much that people go to organizations like their local ARC. Um, so here we've got the ARC of Williamson County or the ARC of Davidson County. We've got the ARC of Tennessee. So kind of those state and local level organizations. And there are others like, you know, disability rights organizations. And, but I would find those providers that are doing kind of boots on the ground work across a number of fields who are just providing human services to people with disabilities and start to volunteer at those places, right? And start to think about, or even just having conversations with those folks. I've learned a lot by being a part of some of those boards um, and just some of those discussions at, at a local level. And that's really, I think, spurred a lot of my interest in this area more than anything is just talking to those those kind of groups because they usually encompass caregivers and self-advocates and advocates. So um, that's one recommendation. I guess, full disclosure, I am on the national board of the United States uh, ARC, as well as the Association of University Centers for Disabilities. So I, I certainly have a bias towards those types of disability organizations. But for me, it's it's personally been very important and, and gratifying from a personal and a professional level to be able to engage in those discussions. But having those discussions at a local level, I think, is really important for folks, whether you're providing early intervention services in a 
for-profit, private equity-backed national chain, or you're working as a student through a, you know, PhD program or something like that. Like you, you can get something out of those that level of, of discourse. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And and quite frankly, I know that, that you're heavily involved in trying to be able to create conversation and to involve everybody in that process. But I, I think that that's healthy for any practitioners to get out of their comfort zone of talking to just other professionals and actually talk to the community a little bit and then bring those discussions back to your organization, challenge your organization to talk through these issues and to and to look at the multifacets that that are involved in delivery of care and are we prioritizing the right things and do we have the right staff the right training and the right models to do what we want to do and do it effectively so i i couldn't agree more and quite frankly i'm glad that you put the arc out there i think that's a wonderful organization to be able to to bring all those voices together but Pablo, I appreciate it. I know that our time is running short, but um, I appreciate just starting this discussion. I think it's something that everybody's got to look into. I don't think there's a clear-cut answer right now, but anything we do, any movement we make, better is better. And I think it's just having the conversations and piloting things and getting that, that result of those pilots back to the community at large, because if one group is successful and can share that, it's going to empower another group to take that leap to say, yes, we can go ahead and make that change as well. So I appreciate it. Yeah, and I would just add to that, Jeff, that it takes time, right? And I think a lot of young, very ambitious, it doesn't have to be young, but very ambitious people jump into these sorts of things and they're like, well, we need to fix it. And and they dive head into it and they face a little bit of opposition or things don't go quite the way they want. And then it all kind of comes crashing down. I think we as a field need to know that th these this type of discourse and these types of conversations and these types of changes take a long time, sometimes decades. And so it's and we I feel like we're still as a field at the very beginning of these conversations. So there's a long way to go. Um, mm -hmm. I don't want people to feel discouraged by that fact, but encouraged by the fact that we're we're doing a much better job, I think, as a field listening and approaching questions and issues and as some larger sort of changes happen within the field. I think, you know, certain leadership changes and, and certain um, organizations taking the backseat or some of them kind of taking a driver's seat too. I think we'll see we'll see more and more uh, valid and hopeful discourse, but it we just need to know that it takes time to do this well and to do it right. So it's 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 uh it's gonna be a slog. Uh, I couldn't agree more. So, well, thanks again, Pablo. I look forward to talking to you in the next time that we get together. All right. Me too. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.